Sometimes you can have all the best intentions in the world and it just depends on how you are feeling that day and so many other different things, how you slept that night, mm. how your relationships go in, all these different kind of inputs. So some mornings I'd wake up and I would like intend to be in a maker mode and I'd just be like, no, like I'd try and type and just nothing was coming. I'm like, okay, cool. I now have to make a hundred emails to people to try and get some interviews for this book. So I'm just going to do those. And I'd send the emails off and at the end of that morning I would have made done 20 emails and I'm like okay that's okay that day is done hi and welcome to the passion pt I'm Dan Brophy a creative wellness coach motivational speaker and pop culture vulture I'm here to break down the creative process into simple techniques that you can use to achieve your goals faster The Passion PT philosophy is that everyone is creative, and by developing and enhancing your creativity, you can improve how you work each day, nurture a hobby or side hustle, or even use creative play as a wellness technique. So join me as I share inspiration, thought starters, and tools to enhance and train your focus and expression a little bit more each day to achieve your best possible output. My guest today is Tim Duggan, who is the founder and editor of Junkie Media. And I wanted to talk to Tim, not only because he's built the largest millennial media platform in the country, but he's found a way to continually reinvent Junkie's offering in a digital landscape where the only constant is change. Tim has just released a book called Cult Status, which I I read in the lead up to us having a chat. When I say read, I actually listen to it on Audible, and Tim has a lovely voice to listen to. It was so effortless to churn through it in two days. Cult Status contains magnificently practical and fun ways to workshop your own business or brand in order to understand how to make it sticky, how to make it irresistible to your audience. This conversation is really relevant for anyone looking to launch any sort of creative project. In this conversation, we discuss discovering what your superpower is and how to use it to create an offering that really resonates with your audience. How Tim transformed his schedule in order to find the time to write his first book. And how Tim works with writer's block, not against it. And why the most important part of any good idea is action. Remember, it's not enough just to have a talent. You have to have a talent for your talent. And it's through understanding how to build and grow the business that surrounds what you love to do that will actually allow you to have long-lasting and meaningful impact. For more on Tim and his amazing book, Cult Status, check out links in the show notes. And as per usual, if you find this podcast inspiring, please share it with someone that might find it inspiring also. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe and to leave us a review in iTunes so that other people can find out about the Passion PT also. Please enjoy my chat with the founder and editor of Junkie Media and the author of the newly minted cult status, Tim Duggan. That's a good idea. (laughs) Do you want to give us the official clap? Yes. Nice. Nice. Don't know if you need to do that, but I always enjoy no, no, it. It's like it's a, it's a ritual. Yeah. Which is <laughs> Just do. clearing the air yeah. of the spirits. <laughs> totally. Tim, thank you so much for having a chat. Thanks for having me, Dan. So, um, uh, well, I, I like to start by asking people, when someone says, hey, what do you do? What do you tell them? Depends on who's asking and when it is. Um, so at the moment, 
what do I do? So I'm the publisher and co-founder of Junkie Media. Um, I kind of often lead with my job, and that's because my job has defined me a lot over the past 14 years of doing it. Um, so it's funny that I kind of always lead with what I do for work, which is publisher and co-founder of Junkie Media. Um, I am leaving Junkie after... 14 and a bit years, which we'll get probably chat about later. What a scoop. I had no <laughs> idea. This is great. Yeah. Cool. I, um, it's, I announced it publicly a, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, yeah, leaving Junkie to kind of do my own thing and kind of experiment and write more. So my question, my answer now will probably be different in three months' time. Um, so then it will probably be author because I've just written, written my first book. I'm going to write a second book. It would be investor because I kind of there's a couple of businesses that I've been chatting to that I want to help them grow bigger um, and husband I think is the third one um, I got married just before we went into COVID lockdown in the middle of March um, so that's still quite fresh and new wow did you uh, I mean how how wonderful it's almost like the ultimate version of a COVID puppy <laughs> <laughs> totally it's weird that you kind of, you know, you say this vow of like in sickness to us part and, and you know, you're the person I'd like to um, quarantine with and then you spend three months just staring at them inside the walls of your own house. So it really tests your relationship. Yeah, because the thing is when you're um, re- living regular life, you see them for a nice tidy hour in the morning and a nice tidy couple of hours in the evening and you have lots of stories to share <laughs> from the days that you've lived yeah and so the idea of knowing exactly what their day's like you've had a bit of cabin fever you're sick <laughs> of the sight of them really makes you question those vows <laughs> yeah um, um but the good thing is it made me make sure i know that it was the right person that i married um because there's you know this is probably you go through ups and downs and this is probably for most people is a, is a pretty crazy hard period both work-wise and lots of uncertainty in the world um so even if you're spending you know 24 hours a day with someone and you're working we've now decided at, at our place um we started off we've got a um, a room up the top which is kind of like a spare bedroom and we turned that into a, our study um and both of us started off sitting on either side of a long table um and then we realized after about about half a minute on the first day that that wasn't going to work. So then now I'm down in a study downstairs and there's like two or three floors separating us, which means that I can be on lots of loud Zoom calls, which I do. I have a very loud voice. Um, and Ben can also be on that and we cannot see each other until lunchtime, which is quite nice. And then there's like the illusion of having lived different lives for a few hours for yeah, lunch to come back totally. and share some stories. Come back together, oh, what are you up to? How was your Zoom? <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, I the, normally my way of when I chat to someone, it's usually I usually know very little about them, and therefore my process of asking questions is usually things that I have no idea about, and I'm just doing my gradual, organic process of discovery. I've just read the book, so I know a little <laughs> bit about your background. I'm sure there's there's it's just the, the elements that are relevant to the theme of developing cult status. Yeah. But I am so, congratulations. It's so. Oh, it's so fun and effortless and I don't know whether it's because I listen to it and you've got a lovely presenting voice <laughs> uh, or an effortless conversational way of telling the stories but I think it's the colloquial language that makes these ideas see- sink in so much better than if it was too uh, authoritative and mm. kind of textbooky. Uh, but I also love that it went into very practical kind of uh, t- tools that allow you to actually get out of the process of being a reader or a listener and into actually 
workbook territory into mm. doing exercises to get you thinking about how it's relevant for your your business or your project or yourself as a brand. Mm. Uh, before we kind of get into that, because that to me is so juicy and I'm, I'm delighted to, to speak to you so close to releasing it, because I want to find out how you even go about writing a book, but also... but. What's your background? When in what led you to Junkie, and how did you begin that that journey? Even did you study media at uni? What was that process of, of that of post uni life that took you to, to to starting Junkie? Yeah, it probably even starts post school life. I think so. I finished year twelve, and the youngest of four kids, and the expected thing to do was to just kind of get on the conveyor belt and go to. Uh, you know, one of the top unis and study commerce or law or something just because it's what you do. And it's not just my brothers and sisters. This is the entire school I went to and the entire kind of ecosystem I grew up in. It's you finish school, you study something for three or four years, you become a graduate in a law firm, management consulting, something like that. And you just get on that conveyor belt and you, you, you never, get off. You never really encouraged, I found, to to experiment or to question too many things as, as, as to is this the right thing for me it's just you pick something when you pick your subjects yeah and then that is the trajectory that begins and completely. we'll see you at retirement completely yeah and I have a lot of my friends now who um, are in nice fulfilled careers but they've never gotten off that conveyor belt and they get to I'm 39 now the world's oldest living millennial as I call myself in the book um, and you do get to that age where you kind of you're probably halfway through your career and you're looking around and you're like Am I doing the right thing? So to go back to the very beginning, I kind of questioned straight out of school, like, I don't want to go to uni straight away. Um, so instead, I looked around and, and tried to figure out what interested me. And I was really interested in advertising and marketing and kind of the creative sides of things. So at 18 or 19, I got a job in the mailroom of an advertising agency, um, which is when they had mailrooms and they had... Of course. They, what do they even have? They wouldn't these days, I I'm sure. Doubt it. I doubt it. Well, it's a terrible place to be if, if they do have <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. There was three or four of us full time in a mailroom and our job was just receiving the, I, I, receiving the mail. Then you would have a, like a pigeonhole for every single person. You put it the, into there. And my job was just delivering the mail. And I loved it. It was one of the best jobs I've ever had because I would go around and you'd go and deliver the mail to creatives, to account service, to producers, to the CEO. And I'd just sit down and talk to them and be like, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, cool. And it was one of the most fun jobs I've had. And I'm still really close to a bunch of the people that I met when I was 18 and 19 delivering their mail. Um, and that, so then for a couple of years I was in advertising and I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't love it. It was kind of something that like I did and I think I figured that out at like 20, which is probably a good age to figure something like that out. And instead on the side, I started writing. Um, and so I um, originally started working for a street press magazine. It was 3D World at the, at the, at the time. Do you remember 3D yeah, World? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Sushi Pics was the name of their, oh, yes. the name of their photos. Yeah, it was too. And just to be featured in to be featured. Sushi Pics. Oh, my God. It was, you know, you'd hear that maybe you were, you were, you'd were been seen on a social page and yes. you would just, you know, it would be such a highlight. I did go and track it down and it was available everywhere on the streets and you'd pick it up and you'd flick through it. 
Um, so my very first ever writing gig was, I spoke to the editor there and I was like, you know, 20. I was like, I want to write for you. And they said, will you go review a bar for us? I'm like, what does that entail? They went, well, go to this bar. They'll give you some free drinks and write a, you know, 50 word review for 3D World. And I was like, this is the best job I've ever heard of. Like, did you in your mind go, this is going to be my job forever? <laughs> like, are you map out your life in relation to your 21 <laughs> year old job that you found that you think is amazing. Yeah, I was just, I was, I was blew my mind that I could go there and I took it really seriously. I'd bring a notepad with me and I'd sit in the corner of a bar and, you know, they'd bring a cocktail over, like a free cocktail over to me. And I'd be there with a friend and I'd make, you know, comments on the cocktail and notes on the music. And it was so funny. Um, but, it kind of got me really passionate about writing and just I really enjoyed it. I, I'd start off and I'd do one 30-word review and then I'd like, oh, cool, and I'd go back to them next week. Um, and one, there was always inside me the inner critic, which was you, know, you can't write, which I think is inside everyone. Um, but then the other part kind of competing with that was like an ambition of, okay, cool, this is kind of fun. I really enjoy this. How big can I take it? So I got a list of every magazine that I really wanted to write for. And it was Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Rolling Stone, GQ. And I just contacted every single one of the editors. No experience. I was 20, 21. And just said, I want to write for you. I'm a writer. I want a journalist. And, you know, some of them ignored me. And the editor of Rolling Stone at the time, her name was Alyssa Blake, she wrote back and she was like, cool, awesome, can you do this album review? So I did an album review for Rolling Stone, which was like my ultimate. Yeah. Um, I think I'd watched Almost Famous just before that, and that had inspired. Oh, wow, yes, <laughs> very much so, for sure. Yeah. Also, even just to be like in a grown-up world as a younger person, to be taken seriously alongside something you look up to feels so magical. Yeah. It feels like you're, you know, you've made it. I think also just discovering the and having success in a creative field and finding that naturally so I wrote a you know 30 word review and she was like oh that's quite good and then the next week I wrote a 50 work review 50 word review and I just kept on building up until I was writing feature stories for them um, and I went to travel to different places like over to South Africa and to Singapore writing content for them and it was just this really eye-opening thing that I could um, write I was pretty good at it um, so that was kind of my early 20s then when I was about 20 three or 24, um, I was going out a lot in the gay scene. Um, and I talk about this in the book um, around how it's sometimes just these like slightly strange decisions that you make that have this like really winding path to where you eventually end up. And I was about 23 um, and I was writing for Rolling Stone and magazines on the side. And I was going out a lot to um, lots of kind of straight clubs. Like it was, it was when... Sydney had its clubbing heyday. So Home Nightclub was huge and Gas Nightclub and Sublime on Pitt Street. Your face. Yeah. I'm like, what was the one I used to go to? Tank? Tank, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tank was amazing. And Globe and just all of these like phenomenal clubs. Like, they were kind of at their heyday. And I'd go to them and I'd listen to amazing music and DJs. And then it got to, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning and all my friends would be like, hey, come to ARC, come to ARC, come meet us there. So then we'd go over to ARC, and ARC has not changed in the 20 years. The music choice has not changed. It's still, it's just, it's, an, it's still a techno remix of a top 40 song. It's just a different top 40 song. Yeah. 
the decor hasn't changed, no. you know, and I just, I'd go from these like amazing environments and then into that and my friends would be there, I'd have fun, but it's always like, why, why are gay clubs and gay venues living in the past? And Sydney gays are just so happy to compromise a lot in terms of the quality of the night in favour of the, the, the promise of hooking up. Yes, totally. <laughs> That's If you were to make that a guarantee at the end of the night, which let's face it, in ARC it pretty much always is. You're prepared to to put up with really questionable, like music environment. You know the lighting at Ark is actually amazing, and, I, and, and some it. great people that DJ there. I just think that it wasn't future facing or forward facing. It was always yes. past facing. Yeah, true. It does feel like forever the in the nineties, but not in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Not in like the <laughs> prog cool nineties, <90s, laughs> but in, in, in the, the like, like tragedy pre Priscilla kind of yeah. 90s. So, like, you know, I've had some amazing times there, so I don't just want to pour shit on... And I know that this is probably specific to people who live in Sydney, but I'm sure no matter where you grew up, there was always a difference, a disparity between straight clubs and gay clubs. And I didn't think the disparity was very good. So when I was 23, I sent out an email to a bunch of friends, and I came up with this idea, um, and it literally was based on the the alliteration of a fun name. Um, The idea was called Fag Tag, um, and the idea was that we wanted to... I was like, why should we... Why should these amazing venues only be used for straight parties? Why can't we take a big group of gays and, and lesbians and trans and, you know, the entire rainbow and put them into these amazing venues? Why don't we just take them over? So I came up, the idea was called Fag Tag, and it was kind of a verb, essentially, like to fag tag something, to kind of tag it, take it over. Um, it was quite subversive to start with. It was kind of we'd go into these straight places like we'd go to Chinese Laundry in Sydney and we'd go to the Bourbon and Beefsteak if you remember that I know the Bourbon and Beefsteak <laughs> yeah I've, I've got a, a, an, un- an uncle who used to have his lunch every day at the Bourbon oh, and Beefsteak wow. they, put his, they put his name on a plaque on one of the booths <laughs> <laughs> amazing yeah totally um, so all of these not that that was an amazing venue but they had, they had a, a nightclub above it called Plan B um, and so it started off as like, I sent a message to a couple of friends. I was like, hey, let's do this thing called Fag Tag. If you want to hear about it, sign up to this mailing list here. In a week or two, there was thousands of people who had signed up to this mailing list saying, awesome, tell me where we're going to go. And it was my first taste of like um, being able to make some kind of positive impact by directing a group of people to do something that's going to be of benefit. So I would say, hey, let's go to... Chinese Laundry this Saturday night and I'll give people like a password to use to get a discount and when it started Chinese Laundry would have a thousand people in there and two three hundred of them might have been queer who kind of came along so this really interesting mix of of cultures kind of clashing together and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and we would take over things like Opera Bar in Sydney and 1,500, 2,000 people would turn up. So it almost got too big to be able to be subversive anymore because we would just completely dominate a venue. Um, so that this is a long and winding story for how I got started, but bear with me. <laughs> so I started Fag Tag. Then off the back of that, I had this amazing mailing list um, and some friends of mine, um, Neil, Andre and Libby had started a website called In The Mix a few years earlier, mm. um, which is a phenomenal website, was a phenomenal website. It was this, it was the clubbing Some Music Bible. reviews, club reviews. It was allowed you to work out what was coming up weeks in advance so you could plan your disco itinerary accordingly. Yeah, 
And it did photos Who's coming, coming, before, like, before, who's coming to of, town Who was out on the weekend Yeah So I kind of took What those street press mags Were doing And made a digital online um, And it was a huge success And they just saw this um, This opening Around the early 2000s Of online taking over um, So I was friends with them And would go out To the same parties And festivals I'd write for them I'd sell tickets To my events Through In The Mix And then one day I was sitting down With Neil Ackland Who ended up Becoming my business partner For the last Almost 15 years and we were talking about, does anything like this exist for the gay community? Um, and we said, no, it doesn't, so let's start it. So then in 2006, we started Same Same, which was a national gay and lesbian website, which for me kind of combined two things that I loved. It combined almost the journalism writing side, and then it combined that online events and things like that and just brought those two things together. And that was 2006. Wow, because I imagine as well... Because you would have had such valuable uh, collateral in that mailing list, which once upon a time you wouldn't have even put any real value on. But the idea of, you know, a couple of thousand active, authentic email addresses for for a committed community that wants to turn up. Yeah. Which is so, so now we realize what the value in that would be. But 15 years ago, I don't think that would have resonated. Not at all. It was just, it was an accidental thing that I sent to a couple of friends. Like, I'd, and the really funny thing is, I'm still using that mailing list today. So, fag tag events still exist. I still do some things. And when I launched my book, I sent an email to this mailing list who had been on there for 15 years. And I was like, hey, okay. here's my newest thing. But they all, do they, do they, they, they know that the person on the other end of that is Tim? I think so. I kind of... It's funny that when I started, I tried to I tried to make it bigger than me, and I used to always say "we" and stuff when I wrote. It was like ah, me, the royal we, the royal the small we. business. We can't wait to see you. <laughs> we loved you coming along. It was literally <laughs> me and you know my dog kind of thing. Um, and then I think as time has gone on, I'm I've kind of like stepped a bit more forward because it's just I think the times have changed, and I think people want to know who are behind these things. One of the things I talk about in the book and we might get to it later is this kind of concept of fake it till you make it and how that's been grained into us for so long is that that's the thing that you need to do and I question that I actually think that being naive and owning up to the reality of the situation is actually more beneficial now you don't need to kind of sit there and say yes you can dive into things and you can say this is the first time I've done this as opposed to oh of course I know what I'm doing here and kind of hiding behind that bravado I, uh, in terms of uh, well you were at so same same happened and I feel like in my mind's timeline of when Junkie came on the scene Junkie's like a 2010 or 11 thing, yeah right? 2013. 2013 early 2013 so what was the uh well, what was the journey from Same Same to, to starting Junkie? Because I feel like the Same Same is something that people were really... That was a, just a go-to for, for a period there. Yeah. And uh, it really spoke to a certain generation and demographic. And I feel like the Junkie's it's, it's a whole other universe. It's, yeah. It is its own ecosystem. Yeah. So how did you parlay one into the other? So Same Same was 2006. Um, and it was an amazing journey. It... it it was kind of the beginning of actually being able to have a community on the internet. So there was forums on there and there was photos and it was people connecting with each other. And one of the things I learned through that was that people will connect with each other digitally if they have an opportunity to meet the real world first and to kind of actually forge a connection, then you can continue that connection online. So it was, it was a really 
a really amazing time. We ended up selling it in 2015 um, to, at the time, company Evo Media that was the largest street press publication. They did SX and mm. MCV and all of those publications. Um, and then, sadly, they went into administration a couple of years after that and same, same, went down with it, which was really sad. But around the time of the early 20-teens, so around 2010, 2011, we actually realised that there was a new generation coming through who were not being served by what was out there. Um, so particularly online, there was a lot of fluffy content. There was a lot of... Yeah, who was around? Like, what, Who was speaking to your... So ped- Pedestrian was around at the time and they never they didn't do much news kind of content. So it was quite kind of like cooler, fashion-y kind of crowd. BuzzFeed existed in the US and they were very much lists so they were oh, yeah. kind of like just kind of pretty Top 10 most important <laughs> things to read before you burst into flames yes yes mm. um so and that was about it for our audience there actually wasn't and there was magazines um so yeah because we're, we're actually really talking about that very interesting speaking of the r.i.p bauer this is the time at which people did uh, were still reading print first yes and digital was uh, a maybe so you maybe yeah. were supporting a print publication with a digital offering yeah, that's, yeah that's really and there's a lot space. of those like the print publications were amazing at the time but none of them really made that proper transition into digital and that was the opening that we saw so it was it was an audience that we felt was being underserved and that audience really to to make it simplified as easy as possible was smart young people. Mm. That was kind of who we... Did you set aside a demo that you really wanted to speak to? Were you... Were you who was your... What was your age bracket? Yeah, so it was, it was quite young. We, I was younger back then. It was... <laughs> it was... The audience was probably 25 to 35. Um, so kind of the millennials, but um, I think there was just even the start of millennials back then being called that. Probably called Gen Y more at the time or just young people. Um, and... We were doing a lot of research at the time and we saw that there was all of these big important things that they really cared about and the environment and social justice and news and politics and it just wasn't being covered in, in, a, in the media they were consuming. So we launched Junkie in 2013 and interestingly, pretty much straight away we realised there was this audience that was bigger than we imagined. So we were primarily a music publisher up until then. So Same Same was the only non-music publication that we had. There was In The Mix, there was Fast Louder, which was live music, there was Mess and Noise, which was Australian music. And Junkie was our first kind of smaller sister website that we launched because we are like, oh, this is, we're a music publisher, let's kind of do a bit of this pop culture thing on the side. And then a really interesting thing happened in a few months after we launched, which was Tony Abbott got elected into power. And that threw everyone. It made young people kind of revolt in the streets. They were really put off that someone who really didn't represent their values was the Prime Minister of the country. You know, that was the era when he appointed himself the Minister for Women. And when just the kind of the entire Abbott era was a real awakening for a lot of young Australians. A, a series of ministerial appointments that were almost like ironic. Yeah. Where it, people who were being appointed things that they were the complete <laughs> antithesis of. I think he was also, I think he was Indigenous Affairs he, as well, well. Yes, there was someone who was doing Indigenous Affairs, I remember. I think thinking, it was Abbott. How well are those affairs being taken care of? Yes, and Minister for Women, you know, which sounds like a, a satire show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that this all of a sudden this kind of like 
up uprising that started to occur amongst young people and we became the place to have an opinion in news and to kind of reflect what our audience was going through so all of a sudden politics became this huge area that we just saw a gap with and went after um, and we employed and had some amazing writers um, over the years who just were able to have this big important platform to for their in, to increase their own reach and also just to just to rile people up and to talk about things they really cared about in in a really passionate way so you know in a very weird and twisted way i have tony abbott to thank for the success of junkie and what we've been able to do was it that uh, people because whenever i'm passionate about something because i've been you know riled up about it or i'm you know just needing someone to bounce the ideas off i just need a forum or a billboard to go to to someone to kind of show me that what i'm thinking isn't completely absurd and did you were you almost like a sounding board for people's opinions in either category or were you really presenting a very specific political view that, that yeah that, did, you, did you have to take a stance we did we we we, we tried in the early days to be a bit more balanced and we we published a couple of conservative voices on junkie and it just wasn't fair for them like the audience saw through it and saw that we were kind of playing both sides it was like tokenistic or something yeah it it felt a bit tokenistic it felt like we don't believe this but hey here's this and then the audience would just tear it apart and it wasn't that wasn't nice (laughs) like it got amazing traffic and you see that often in you know, a lot of media does that where they kind of do both sides. And I, I, I understand that in mainstream media, but we were proudly not mainstream media. We were, a, you know, a small, nimble media company who was, we only had a couple of full time staff on Junkie at the time, and we needed to make some noise. What was your, speaking of the, the, the growth of the company, what was that trajectory from 2013 to? 2020 like did you have a a big sort of tipping point or or, a growth spurt where you all of a sudden had to double your staff no it was more gradual than that it just kind of and I think it also came from there's a couple of different ways that we earn our revenue as a business and that's been one thing that has been most interesting over the years because it felt like the company has evolved so much so we've you know in the past sound alliance which was the parent the precursor to junkie media had a ticketing business. Um, we used to have an agency called Thought by Them. Then we kind of stopped that and then we restarted a new agency called Junkie Studio. We have done events, you know, conferences for tens of, not tens of thousands, thousands of people. Um, so we've kind of been constantly looking for what the new revenue source is. And that's something that's actually helped us to survive over the years by diversifying our revenue streams. So within that the growth's been kind of pretty gradual um to a point that we were um acquired then in 2016 by a company called o media who's an out-of-home digital media company sorry an out-of-home company that acquired us a digital media company um uh, in the book you mentioned the idea of uh, identifying what your superpower is and mm-hmm. i and i often love to ask people about that you know what do you think your x-men superpower is you know how what do you think that you do you know better than anyone else and I, in terms of you, you know, going from in the or what, same, 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 yeah, uh, from in the mix, to same, same to junkie. Do you think that did you identify where your 
superpowers lie, which allows you to be good at at, at what you've done? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's hard to identify your own superpowers. I, th- I feel like there's some surface level ones that might be, you know, you're good at writing or something like that. But I think trying to find the actual real nugget in there is quite hard. Um, for me, to be honest, the process of writing this book has helped me find mine because I kind of wanted to, I've got exercises in here and I did all those exercises myself and I kind of, you know, tried to make them better. And in doing that, the more I did them, I was like, ah, oh, that's mine. So mine now, which I can say with retrospect, having looked at my career for the past 15 years, is that I'm really good at finding and building communities of people and then fueling it with stories. That's kind of how it grows. So that's my kind of superpower. And When you say fueling it with stories, do you mean giving, uh, providing sort of content that allows the community to engage? Yeah, it could be. Even, I think my you know doing fag tag and then you know i was ran nightclubs and then things like that really they're all about the community that goes to them and then fueling them with stories could be the acts that you book there that then create this something like a common language for people to talk about um and i know so i think the you know the obvious way of thinking about that is junkie is a community and the stories that we publish on junkie are, are, are some of the stories that we create but there was a period there where um, I ran Nevermind with Courtney Act, and that's in fact where I yes. knew you from. I was the doorman of the Melbourne of, branch. Of Disgraceland in Melbourne. Yes. Yeah, which was an amazing time. Um, so for a couple of years, we had a nightclub in Sydney called Nevermind, and we had people like Lady Gaga perform there, and some of the Pussycat Dolls, and some Spice Girls, and it was amazing. And that, in a way, is there was a community there, like a real amazing community of which I'm still friends with most of the people from there and I still get messages 10 years later from people saying bring it back or I remember from those Nevermind days which is like so cool where where is Nevermind it's on Oxford Street um it's a couple of doors down from Stonewall okay yeah and is that were you uh what was that because I'm trying to think about my timeline from when I was doing the door for you guys in Melbourne but that was was around around 2009 to 2011 okay I think and so we had a night in Melbourne called Disgraceland at Jet Black on Greville Street, yeah. um, which we did every Saturday night, as well as doing Disgraceland in Sydney every Friday night, and then a night called Saturday Fucking Night on Saturdays in Sydney. And did you were you doing that as a as your main focus back then? No, or was just a side it was always so. Throughout that whole period, I still ran same same. Um, that was the start of kind of junkie kind of period. Um, so that was that was a really intense period. I, I remember because I would work five days a week and then run clubs two nights a week. Um, would you have been out at clubs anyway during that time? Or? Not to the extent of that I was. Because for me, nightclub door work was a great way for me to do the thing I would otherwise be doing, which was to be out. But I was earning money instead of spending totally. money <laughs> and saying marginally more sober than I would otherwise. Yeah, well, I actually gave up drinking for the whole, almost the whole period that um, Nevermind was on because I couldn't, I couldn't function if I had to. I could be tired, I could deal with that, I could sleep that off, but I couldn't be tired and hungover and work five days a week and be out every Friday and Saturday night. Like something had to give. Um, and that was where I took a big break from drinking and then that actually led me to, now I'm on the board of an organisation called Hello Sunday Morning, which is all about having a better drinking Is um, it Chris Rain? With Chris Rain. Yeah, I actually, we actually, he was a guest of mine for another uh, 
event that I hosted for uh, another client of mine. Oh, uh, awesome. He's yeah. wonderful. And I love, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not a drinker. So for me, I think how wonderful to encourage people to realize that it's a negotiable element to your socializing. Yeah. You can still have really vibrant social lives without, you know, alcohol just being the automatic yeah. go-to. Yeah. The, 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 the way that I love that they talk about it is uh, what is your relationship with alcohol? And that's a way better way of talking about it rather than like abstaining or don't drinking or making people who do drink feel terrible. I think the question is, and everyone has a personal relationship and it's like, do you have a good relationship or not? And uh, Are you celebrating life or are you commiserating about <laughs> that, like, a bad week? Yeah, know? totally. Yeah. And do you drink once a week or five times a week? And there might be some people who think they have a good relationship with alcohol because they might only have a small amount of um of drinking and if they do that's fine there's no almost no judgment but i think just questioning what is your relationship to alcohol and is it a healthy one mm. is something that i've been passionate about ever since i took a, a bunch of time off drinking in order to survive for it's, a, it's a really good reminder actually because often i think everyone's questioning how can you have it all and you know if i, I i'm already so busy how do i even think about taking on a passion project like a writing a book or starting a community or doing anything that, that people think that they're already so thin on time how is that possible but I think if you were to really analyze where your hours are going and realize that things like drinking isn't isn't a expendable mm. investment that you've been just automatically doing maybe you can still go out but if you're not recovering on Sunday what could you do with that time instead totally well I'll tell you a secret of how I wrote this book yeah please um, have you read or heard of The Miracle Morning? It's a book by a guy called Hal Elrod called okay. Miracle Morning. Okay. Um, and it's, it's um, all about how to actively use your time in the morning rather than passively. Because that time in the morning is... I'm generally a morning person anyway. Like morning for me used to be kind of... I'll get up at 6.30. And therefore I'm like, oh, I'm a morning person. Um, but this book is all about kind of changing your mindset to making that a really active time so you know everyone's like I want to meditate more well there's your time in the morning I want to write more there's your time in the morning so I read that book and it just sparked something in me and so I started getting up earlier and earlier until um, after a few weeks I was getting up at 4 to 4.30 wow that's so great <laughs> yeah slightly slightly weird but I reckon I could it, I feel like I'm, I'm doing 5 now you should read like, Good Morning yes it's, it's wonderful like it's, it'll totally ruin my relationship my boyfriend's already you know furious <laughs> about the fact that I'm like look I've got to go to bed at 10 I'm getting up at 5 <laughs> and he's like well I'm not going to bed at 10 and therefore, I'm not going to come to your house now and go to sleep with you. Just to go to sleep, I'm going to have a life and do things. So yeah. You know, do you? Are you on the same sleep schedule as your partner? No, the complete opposite. Okay. So, okay, so he's. Oh, so interestingly, um, my husband. He he's more of a night owl. He's certainly not a morning person, um, but not a super night owl. So he actually we go to bed at about the same time, um, like nine thirty ish, and he'll often kind of sit there and read, and I'll just go to bed. Um, so when I wrote the book, I got up at between 4 and 4.30 every single morning and meditated for a bit, um, wrote for an hour or two, went to the gym. Um, and this book was therefore written in those early morning hours for six months to a, to a year. And the amazing thing about that was as soon as I got into the routine of it, it was actually quite easy. Like I loved that time in the morning. It's so smart for so many reasons. The, the most obvious of which to me is if you were to take think about that two or three hours of night time that you're giving up in order to dial it forward 
what would you be doing with that time anyway? Mm. Chances are probably just watching some Netflix. Mm. Well, why don't you, in a sense, take the time where you're exhausted and brain dead and only good enough to watch TV and then have it early. Totally. And then use it to be awake, to be alive, to, to not spend the, the most... Poten- like the, your greatest potential of the day is probably in the first few hours. Yeah. And you're probably squandering that on Instagram along, you know, a busy, trafficy ride to work because you've, you're leaving at the same time as everyone else. Yeah. You know, there are so many things that you would benefit from by just and the smugness alone of waking up before <laughs> the rest of the world. That's right. I totally understand how smug it sounds. And the one thing that the book... Um, Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod talks about it's a slightly self-helpy which I, 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 oh, I I'm, no I'm speaking to the right <laughs> I'm preaching to the guy um, um, it says the kind of because most people or someone listening to this is probably like I'm not a morning person I'm not a morning person and the book just says that's complete bullshit like you either say you're a morning person or not it's what you tell yourself and so as soon as I was like, oh, I do really love mornings, I became this person who was slightly smug because, you know, my, my husband would come down and have a shower and come down at 8.30. I've been up then for four hours and I've, like, written a chapter in the book and I've gone to the gym and I've walked the dog and I've made breakfast. Um, and I tried not to be smug about it, but it's I just love that time. And if I didn't... Because then I went to work every day. So I wrote this book also in the, in the hours kind of outside of work. Um and if I didn't do that in the morning, I wouldn't have written a book. Because otherwise, when are you going to do it? It'd have to be on your lunch break, after you know, after, after work. work, when you've already been rinsed dry of all of your creative goodness. Mm. I think that the idea of giving your passions, your best energy, and giving the rest of the world's demands you at 75% is totally fine. Mm. I think that, you know, you may as well. And that means that, you know, I like to exercise towards the end of the day because it means that... I'm pretty brain dead, but you know what? That's okay because I'm still able to throw some weights around and yeah. you know listen to pop music. Um, Madonna will get me through. <laughs> um, well, talk to me about the process of writing a book because I love the idea of going to this territory myself. But I always think, okay, when faced with the daunting task of how to turn an entire process or experience or story or life into a couple of hundred pages. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Where did, where did you begin? Yeah, I think it's because when you read a book, you don't realise how much, how many hands, how many eyes, how crafted that has been. So sometimes it's quite daunting because you see a book, and not just this one here, but you'll you know you read a book and you're like, ah, oh, it seems like they've thought through it so much or the structure works so well, but the amount of work it took to get there, and probably the amount of for every one page, there's probably a field of pages that have d- done the background to then just succinctly be represented there are in one. So page. many, and and the input of so many people. Like the book publishing world is, it's amazing to watch it because I'm used to the digital publishing world where we'll think of an idea in the morning and it goes online that afternoon. But then the problem with that is by tomorrow it becomes old news. Mm. Whereas a book has this kind of permanence, and there's a reason because the thoughtfulness that goes into it and the different people's input into it and the questioning. Um, so the way that a non-fiction book works is um, there's a book proposal and that is normally what a book is kind of sold on. So for mine, it was like five or six pages of, hey, here's this interesting trend that I've noticed. This is what I want to write about. This is a rough outline of it. And that's enough to take to a publisher and for someone to look at and be yes or no, I, I do or don't want this book. Do they say yes on the basis of 
who you are, what your background is, the fact that, that, that you're instantly going to have a community, all those things beyond just the pitch concept itself? Yeah, I think that that's one thing that, that my book publisher told me is kind of having a platform is important in some way. And that could be a social media platform, it could be the business that you work for, it could be um, the kind of an email list that you have, just having an ability to be able to let people know about what your content is, is hugely important. So that's why, you know, social media is very important. That sells, that can get you a book contract, the more followers you have. Um, so I think having a platform in some way. Then from there, I used a, um, I used a program called Scrivener, which is a long form writing um, software. So Microsoft Word is terrible for big projects. I, this is me personally speaking, because you're just constantly scrolling up and down and it's just like there's no order to it. So the way that Scrivener works is a little bit like thinking of how you would script like a movie and you'll, you know, I'm looking here, people can't see, but there's some beautiful um, post-it notes on a wall. The way that Scrivener works is it imagines each block of writing as almost like a post-it note. And so you, so the post-it note, the first one could be, let's take this book. It's, um, it's a story about um, Zoe Foster Blake's company, GoTo. So it's just it's the, the story, the post-it note's called GoTo. And then I would write, you know, a thousand words on that story. And then the next one might be, okay, here's a story on um, Michael Fox, who started Shoes of Prey and then started a new business called Fable, which is a, um, a, a vegan meat, essentially. Um, and so then that would be another post-it note. And then what it allows you to do is you have all these thoughts and then you can move the post-it notes around digitally and it moves all of the corresponding text around with it. So it's a really nice way of just kind of being able to move your thoughts around and that's where the book comes from. So for me, every time I'd have a thought, I'd be like, oh, this is interesting. I'll just write it out. I'd write 500 words on something. That would become almost a little section, a post-it note. And then I'd write 500 words on something else. And then... Once you've written enough of that, mornings at 4.30 in the morning, I would come and look at it and be like, oh, that section kind of goes with that. So I'd kind of combine those two post notes together. Then you'd move that around. And so Scrivener was this like amazing program that allowed you to think visually about a long form project. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was thinking, I was actually marveling because I, I, I was, I enjoyed Knowing that we were going to chat, I wanted to get an idea of the book, but I just inhaled it so quickly. And I marveled at how... I listened to it on Audible and I marveled at how nice the storytelling was and that you introduced personal anecdotes at nice stages in the, the story as well. So mm. we get a, re- a real sense of you. Mm. And I was thinking you could have opened on yourself on a desert island, for example. P.S. We need to talk about you going to a desert <laughs> island. <laughs> yeah, we can talk um, about that. But, the, um, but you could have opened... There are so many things that could have been a nice opener, but they were... The, the autobiographical elements were punctuating the experience really nicely. Yeah. And so it was a nice mixture between, like, the, the hearty and then the sort of specific business-oriented stuff. And I imagine that, that would you'd need to see it visually in order to be able to gauge where things should appear. Totally. And that's and I, uh, thanks for saying that, because that's that is exactly what the process of writing this book was like. So there was all these different stories. So me being on a deserted island, um, and then an interview with someone fascinating, and then a thought about a concept or a framework of what this new generation was. And then I was just constantly moving them around. So the first draft of this book actually started on an anecdote of me 
when we sold the company and I was over in France and I was shitting myself, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Um, and it started off and it was kind of a bit about me and it was meant to be this like story for people to kind of understand who I was. And also just so you, just, you think that the entrepreneur's journey is like, you know, nothing but champagne, but actually it's, yeah, it's you know. it's pretty shitty. Yes, totally. <laughs> you're vomiting, you're, you're alone in spewing. I was alone in spewing at both ends. Um, so that originally was was the start of it, and then in the first draft, and the first draft was terrible. I thought it was okay at the time, otherwise you wouldn't hand something in. But when I look back at what it was now compared to where it is, it just was... All of the concepts were there. It just wasn't as clear or as easy for the audience. Like It's almost like I was making the audience do the hard work by kind of jumping around too much and then not being a coherent, coherent, coherent narrative. The most interesting creative advice that I, when I handed the first draft in, so the first draft was essentially a collection of stories. That was kind of like, and my uh, publisher, um, an amazing woman called Lex Hurst. Do you know Lex? No. Oh, the name sounds familiar, but I don't know. Um, she is amazing. She was the curator of Junket, that event that we did right. for the last two years that we did it. Um, and she's phenomenal and super creative and I handed the first draft in and it's my first book first draft the same feeling that I used to have when I handed something in at Rolling Stone of like oh this is a bit shit they're going to realize I'm a fraud you know I, I think when I was younger that was probably that was probably 50% of a voice now it's like 10% of a voice I think I've kind of got a bit more confident in myself and my writing but it's still always there so I handed it in and she took about six weeks and it was a really long six weeks for me because I'm like, she's going to hate it. She's going <laughs> to send it back. I don't know what I'm doing, all this kind of stuff. And she wrote back about a 3,000, 4,000 word essay, essentially. And it was really conceptual, which I loved. It wasn't, you should change this. It was, here's how to think about it. Mm. And the most interesting thing that she said was, when you read a book, it's like looking at a beautiful mosaic and you need to describe that mosaic to the audience and what you have at the moment are all of the individual tiles but what you don't have is you need to explain to the audience this is this beautiful mosaic you're going to see and I'm going to now walk you through each individual tile so that by the end of it when you look back at it all you realise how beautiful this mosaic was and it was just this this like amazing moment of realisation that I got it. Like, I, I needed to kind of thread all the stories together and find this cohesive narrative. And that's where the seven steps came from. That's where just everything came from that moment. And the most interesting thing is that between the first draft and the second draft, the content is probably like 90% the same, mm. but the way it's framed, the position of it is completely different. It's, it is, framing is an interesting concept, isn't it? Because if you think about the way... Uh, Say, for example, you won the lottery and you uh, every single person you bumped into for the next six months wanted to ask you about it. Your telling of that story gets refined as you go and the order in which you tell the story mm. changes in terms of, you know, I almost didn't buy the ticket and then I chose those numbers at the last minute, which I never normally do. And then, I, you know, you, you really get a hand on the best way for someone to succinctly come away with the feeling that you want to impart. And I feel like when you're thinking about framing a story in terms of making something really engaging it's it is yeah you're right it's actually about the, the order and the, 
the how much information to receive when, mm. and the, the fact that you know, I think also that you're right. The seven steps, the seven key learnings that you uh, bookend the chapters with, are a nice way for your brain to go. Oh, I've consumed this much information. Do I understand what that last section was since we last did a? Because you call them IRLs, I- the IRL, little, yeah, little, yeah, little, little workshops. And it's a nice way for me to to go. I remember my last IRL and what I took away from that one. And since I heard, since I went into that, that territory in my brain, do I feel like I've got a new sense of learning or have I added to my my bank of knowledge? And I, I think it's, it allows the brain to kind of, you know, trust that they they know what's going on and yeah. it's a little breather almost. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's a tendency sometimes to... We, or the creator, will think something is simplistic because it they makes it complete so well. sense to them. Yeah. And then yet to someone else who's hearing this for the first time, it needs to be simple for them to understand it. And I I felt that was kind of a bit of an aha moment for me because there was times when I was like, well, this, of course, this makes sense, but I've been doing it for 15 years, which is why it makes sense to me. Whereas someone who's never thought about this and you're trying to explain a concept to them and you need them to understand it, of course you need to explain it really simply like you're explaining it to a seven-year-old sometimes. Well, also, you know, your, uh, you know, this book champions impact first thinking mm. in terms of really thinking about the change you want to make or the change you want to see in the world or the impact you want the work to have and then almost retrofitting your process based on what you want the experience to be. How did you think about a book in terms of, did you go, okay, my, my target demo is this person at this stage in their career or did you think about it in terms of, I want to create something that is an effortless weekend read. Like, what was your mindset going yeah. into? It? Like, the overarching principle is I wanted to. Well, I wanted it to be me. And so, when someone says, and a review that I read last week was someone said that I was explaining to them like they were down at the pub and just talking to a mate. I'm like, oh my god, that's exactly what I. That's who I am, and I don't try and not be that. So I think that was the fact that that came across and that these concepts can be explained and understood really simply but elizabeth gilbert um who is amazing and who we love who yes who who we love i went and saw her over in um la for airbnb open which i talk a little bit about in the book um she was one of the speakers when you were listening what was happening at airbnb open i was because i'm i'm a such a gwyneth paltrow stan i'm such an elizabeth gilbert stan (laughs) and frank lloyd Wright. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Excuse me? Hello? Like, it's just my... It's like someone went into my brain and went, okay, let's just think of your ideal weekend and who you want to see yeah. on stage. Yeah, it was like... like is it. Madonna, like, doing the lunchtime <laughs> performance? Um, who They did have... I think Gaga came <laughs> and did, like, a pop-up show or something like that. Okay, it was, of course. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, then I also, just to add that off, at that same weekend, as part of it, we went to the premiere of um, La La Land. Oh, wow. Like, the, like with... Ryan Gosling and oh. Emma Stone there and stuff. It was, it was so. It was, so it's probably a like, summation of all of my interests and your interests oh in my one. God, I you like th- my plane could t- crash on the way home and I would die. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, so one of the quotes Elizabeth Gilbert said in the book, which was said at the talk, which I then put into the book, was when you're writing for someone, you need to find that one person that it's for and write just for them. And I found one person. It's actually well, it was one of. Um, a lady, lady girl who I worked with um, and she was worked full time for us but she always had these like really curious and interesting side hustles that she liked doing and she was constantly kind of trying out new things and she was really inquisitive and curious and 
I wrote the book for her. And I've told her this. I'm like, you're the one person I was writing this for. Um, And I just, I loved that, that I could see every time I wrote something, I was like, would Fran's her name? Would Fran like this? Is this how Fran would understand it? Um, And it's, it was just interesting to kind of, narrow down onto one person um, and I ran into Fran in the street and I'm like you were the person that I wrote this book for great yeah and, and she's like I hated it <laughs> <laughs> totally I missed the mark I spoken to her <laughs> since then so um, she probably does hate it so. oh I love I mean but also I think that makes it's a, it's a really nice way to do it I think if you are also uh, aiming to speak to one person you're not you know what language to use you know how to make the ideas resonate you're also not overwhelmed by the idea of having to do be everything to everyone because you're um sorry there's a dog trying to give me a chew toy um the the um the the specificity that you have by addressing it to someone actually has universality in it mm. because you're going to be presenting concepts that are uh you know are universally relevant but people can attune their ear to to get points of reference for how you're presenting an idea so that they can work out what's right for them in relation to that continuum. Yeah. And I think if you dot it around the place and you address different chapters to different people, it's almost like when you have, um, like, I always knew that when watching Margaret and David's The Movie Show, I was always going to resonate with Margaret. And therefore I could trust whether or not she said she liked it, if I was going to like it. Really the opposite of if David said he liked it. Yeah, I was didn't. like, I'm out. And so I think similarly, like, if you, if you have one target for your tone... Uh, if I don't agree with it, I'll know in relation to mm. what you're describing, how, where I sit on that continuum. Yeah. I think that actually, well, what about the idea of the time between thinking, hmm, I could, I could write a book, or even if I was to write a book, what would it be, to delivering the finished version of it? Yeah. What was that time? So it was, like? it was a New Year's resolution that made me write the book. So New Year's 2018 going into 19. Um, I was in Malaysia with my husband and I woke up on New Year's Day and we were just talking about New Year's resolutions, which I normally think are a bit of a wank. Like, people make... Like, why should you wait until January 1 to make a resolution? Why not just do it today? Um, however, there's something still quite nice. I quite like goals and goal setting. So I turned to him and I was like, I'm going to write a book this year. And he was like, oh, that's nice, dear. <laughs> I think he's used uh, to some of my kind of like harebrained schemes sometimes. And I was inspired enough that on the plane back, so we got we flew back on Jan the 1st from um, Kuala Lumpur to Sydney, and I wrote the book proposal on the plane. <laughs> good on you. Yeah. I just, Something about being on a plane is so good for getting things done. I love I don't know what it is. Plane. Working on a plane and, and ideating in the shower. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah. They're just, just things that I know are such hot spots. There's a term called air emotional. And it's, you know, when you're up there and you get kind of like extra emotional yeah. like watching movies I've, and stuff. I've, I've cried during the Invasion of the Body Snatchers <laughs> remake starring Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. And I was like, emotional, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, that's, I think there's something about when you get emotional, you can kind of get caught up in an idea. And that's what you need when you have a book proposal. It's kind mm. of like you need to really get excited by it and get pumped because you're now, I'm now going to spend the next year talking about this bloody book and the next 10 years you know talking to people about these concepts which is so exciting but you need to believe in them that's a really interesting point when you're no longer feeling the emotional high of the anything is possible and you're starting to doubt did you have any techniques that you used to get yourself back on track to just get the thing done like the consistency of that early morning thing was like my some mornings you'd wake up and you just there was nothing there and i 
my one way of getting motivation back was speaking to really interesting people. So every time I got to a bit of like a dip or got to a bit of like a, a writer's block and I was like, oh, just not feeling it at the moment, I would search and be like, oh, that company there is amazing. I want to speak to the founder of that and then email them. And then every time I did an interview, I just got that bit of extra puff in my sales and it just kind of gave me a little bit, oh, that was interesting. And speaking to different people, so I ended up speaking to kind of 40, 50 people for this book. And really everyone came, not that I only spoke to them when I was having a hard time, but everyone that I spoke to just gave me this different perspective. So that was my kind of just trying to bring a new type of influence into what I was doing. What, what would, is that, how long would a period of being stuck last for and if you had done your 4am rise you're at your desk at five and you're you're just not able to put finger to type pad then would you then think oh well i'll go and use this time for research or for uh i'll just type bad words what did you yeah yeah have you heard of the the concept of maker and manager time no so it's it's a concept that um lorraine murphy who's a friend of mine and she's an author and she often talks about this is that there's different modes of being in. One is a maker when you're kind of creative and the other is a manager when you're doing your emails or doing your invoicing or doing your tax. And sometimes you you have an intention. So you sit there and say, okay, this Sunday afternoon, I'm going to be in a manager mode. So I'm not, no creativity. I'm just going to go there and I'm going to, you know, do my invoices or something that's not that exciting. And there's other times when you say, I'm going to be in a maker mode and, you know, can put the candles on and kind of do that. But sometimes you can have all the best intentions in the world and it just depends on how you are feeling that day and so many other different things, how you slept that night, mm. how your relationship's going, all these different kind of inputs. So some mornings I'd wake up and I would like intend to be in a maker mode and I'd just be like, not, like I'd try and type and just nothing was coming. I'm like, okay, cool. I now have to make a hundred emails to people to try and get some interviews with this book. So I'm just going to do those. And I'd send the emails off and at the end of that morning I would have made done 20 emails and I'm like okay that's okay that day is done that's great I think that even having um, a backlog of tasks for people to know that they can turn to if they aren't feeling the flow just so that you don't freak out you're like well that's fine that I'm not able to show up to the page for a great chapter or even a bad chapter that I can edit later on but I have these 10 things that I know need to be done sometime in the next two weeks yeah so I'm chip away at that and Often I find if you do enough of the other thing, you'll eventually want to come back. A hundred percent. It needs to be done. Mm. So therefore, like, let's say in writing a book, it takes 500 hours of manager time, 500 hours of maker time. Mm. Every hour that I'm spending doing an email means the next morning I don't need to do that and I've got enough kind of inputs. Um, so there's that consistency. That was the thing for me. It was just trying to do that every morning, even if I felt shit. Um, I would sit on my couch as well. I find my couch is just super creative. Mm. Um, and what the sun would like slowly come up and my dog would sit there at my feet. I'd also put on the same playlist every time. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and for me, it was Missy Higgins. Um, it was either Missy Higgins Radio or Missy Higgins Best Off. And there's something about my husband now hates it whenever he hears Missy Higgins because they've literally, you know, when they do Spotify's like your year in review, mm. mine is just every song is Missy Higgins. And not because I love her so much as an artist, but one, I think she is amazing. But I think that that familiarity switches my mind off and tells me that I'm in creative mode. 
So as soon as I hear the start of All For Believing, which is the first song on the Best Of Missy Higgins um, soundtrack, I just go straight into that mode. As soon as I do that, I'll sit down and I won't hear it anymore and I'll just kind of get into the mode and write. I love that. In terms of gathering inspiration, you, you said that you could always outsource it by going to stage another interview, but were there other things uh, that you would consume to fill your well that would really make you want to yeah. create? As soon as I'm in thinking mode around... It's like the old kind of concept of the red car. Like if you're wanting to buy a red car, all of a sudden you'll see them everywhere and you'll think, oh my God, red cars are everywhere. When I'm in that kind of creating gathering mode, which I was for this book, everything you see becomes a potential for inspiration. So I'd be scrolling through LinkedIn and someone would share a post. I'd be like, oh, that's amazing. I'd screenshot it or save it. And... I'm currently in that mode. I'm, I'm thinking about a second book now and I'm kind of in this like hunter-gatherer mode. And it is just amazing that you see things like, a lot of them's on social media, a lot of kind of Twitter and LinkedIn. And I, I try and kind of curate my feed to be things that will I will need for this next stage of creative gathering. Um, so, you know, I'm sure you're the same of if you want visually interesting things then you follow some really amazing instagram pages that you know are going to post things that are going to get you excited yeah a good hack for that's actually to create a new account that is purely for the purpose of mm. of your research space so that when you go in you're not seeing your friends sh- your friends shirtless people you know cakes <laughs> like the um the it's just good to go okay well i'm i'm researching in this space so i'll just create a purely uh kind of yeah, nice. scrapbooky collectible uh, is, do you do account. that yeah I do and I have different accounts for different projects so I mm. can if I know that I need to be within a certain space it also means that I can specifically not go into accounts that are either not relevant or likely to, to distract or mm. you know um, I know that you know, it, some of those like Pinterest is so great for only giving you things that you have specifically shown your interest in but Instagram can be really bad for research because you're constantly just getting things that are being paid to be there or, yeah. you know, the algorithm is usually trying to destroy you in some way. So it's uh, it's better to be really specific with your, your, follow, yeah. your followerships. I think it's amazing, though, that when you are in that mode, that kind of, like, open for inspiration mode, how much inspiration you kind of take in. Mm. And it's just that's such an important phase of the creative process. Um, and I, I just loved that. And I, I would start, you know, your shower thoughts and driving thoughts and my notes app on my phone, which is where I kind of put just all of my thoughts. Um, they, I think I've got, I got up to like book notes 32 or something like that. Cause I'd be like book notes one and I'd write pages and pages and just like thought and something like that. And then it'd get too much to handle. I was sick of scrolling and I'd start book notes two. And I got up to, yeah, somewhere in the 30s. And then I would take that, put that into, you know, my Scrivener document. And that would be the basis of when I sat down to write at four in the morning, I'd be like, ah, that was an interesting thought. I'm going to like write about that. So it's almost like that's how the creative flow happened. So wonderful. Did you have, uh, is there a a sort of, did you have to give up or park or say no to any particular life offerings for the duration of writing the book so that you had that extra yeah you say no to a lot of things at night time <laughs> there's mm. a lot of like late night oh, kind yes. of social things because you want to try and be up in the morning not right now though no <laughs> corona would be a great time to write <laughs> totally. to write that second book um so you do like the sacrifices you have to make because you you 
especially when it starts getting down to the proper deadline period, when you know I had six months ish to write the first draft, then got it back, and then about six weeks to do a second draft. And then got it back in about six days to do a third draft. And I, I joked the next one would be six hours. And it was something like that. Like they gave it to me on a Friday. And they're like, can you get it back to us by Monday? So it's amazing. Once you actually start getting down to that kind of proper deadline period, you have to give up a lot of things because you've got six weeks to do it. You know, you don't want to go and spend a couple of weekends away or you start feeling guilty or the book becomes a bit shit because you're kind of sacrificing quality for all that stuff, which can happen outside of those hours. Well, so for book number two, what would you do differently or what would you, uh, what do you wish you'd known at the beginning of book number one? Yeah, really good question. Um, I think I've got more confidence in it and the style. I probably, I probably will lean more into the writing style, I think, because just that's been really consistent feedback of people saying it's really easy to read. I devoured it in a weekend. Um, I started listening and I couldn't stop. And I love that. And so I think... It was, that's my style. So I'm probably going to lean a bit more into that and maybe have a bit more confidence in that. Um, the second one is I think the structure worked of having just like really easy things to hang stories on. So I'd like to try in this one, because the structure didn't come until later. I'd like to try and see, could there be a structure from the start? But I kind of worry that that might be a bit self-limiting as well. Um, so I don't know. I... I I'd like to think the second book is going to be easier, but people have told me that it's just as hard. <laughs> you know, I've forgotten all the hard parts of this. I'm in like the fun part now, which is like talking about it and taking people through these exercises. And you almost like forget. I'm such an optimist as well. I've kind of forgotten all of like the hard, shitty parts of it. And I feel like I'm just about to hit them again. But I, but this, a second book is something that I would like, I'd like to do. I'm just still chatting to the publisher mm. about it. Ideas. What do you think your? Uh, well, if I was to sort of check in with you in a year's time, and what would what what, what will life look like in a year's time? You you will presumably no longer be with Junkie. You will really be focused on do that. I mean, how long will it take to write the second one? Do you think? I suppose you can't really tell from this. Yeah, point. probably probably six months of of proper writing. I would say. Um, so I finish up at Junkie full-time in a few months. I'm moving into a new role called Editor-at-Large. I'll still be involved in some way. Oh, the Andre Leontelli of Junkie. <laughs> yeah, that's, he has inspired me to, um, to be Editor-at-Large, um, which is kind of like a nice honorary title um, to have. And are you sort of uh, are you advising on tone and direction? Yeah, I just, I just I'm not ready to say goodbye yet, and neither is Junkie. So I think it's more just a sign of we will I'll continue to work on some kind of key projects um, and keep advising and helping. Like we've, we've, I've got this amazing team in place now, people who've been there for a few years that we've kind of been building up. So I just want to continue to be able to be there for them so that they can make the transition as easy as possible. Um, Do you know who would ultimately take over your... Um, a, yeah, so a couple of people. Um, so Rob Stott, who is currently managing editor at Junkie, he's been promoted into a new role called editorial director. Um, we are hiring for a managing editor at the moment, which is quite exciting. Um, we've only had two managing editors in 10 years at Junkie, so that's exciting for someone new to come in. And then on the agency side, um, Tom Pitney, who um, co-founded Punky, or founded Punky, actually, um, he... Uh, he's based in Melbourne and he's going to take 
a lot of kind of the client relationships of our big clients like Netflix and American Express and stuff like that. Um, so the, and the two of them, Tom's been with us for five years, Rob's been with us for three years. Um, and very exciting to get a managing editor into that role as well. Yeah, that's great. It's also nice to know if you know who's, because Junkie's your baby in a way, it's nice for you to know who's taking care of your baby. Completely. And I've known that I was going to eventually leave for a very long time, for years, and have been working to build up the team around me so that they're in a really amazing place. So it feels nice. It's not like I'm just saying bye mm. and walking out the door and never coming back. Um, so it's, it feels nice. It feels it's in really good hands. Um, Media is going to be a really interesting time over the next um, little bit. But in a year's time, to answer your original question, I will be um, probably with a second book. Um, I'd like to kind of come out around this time next year in an ideal world, but depending on publisher chats. Um, I would like to have invested in and helped grow from a less involved position a couple of companies I'm really passionate about, the kind of in spaces that I'm really passionate about. Um, and then probably started a couple of other small things. Um, I don't think I want to start anything big. I'd like to start a series of small things and just see what I enjoy and what the audience likes and kind of what takes off. In terms of what you'll invest in and what you'll start, are they going to be digital platforms? Probably not for a while. I know that I can do that and I've... I've, I've I'd like to actually test out some different spaces and different areas. Um, I always could launch something, but I, uh, Junkie and Punky, I feel like I've done what I wanted to do in that space. Um, and I certainly wouldn't do anything to kind of compete with them because they're amazing platforms and deserve to get bigger without me. Um, so, yeah, probably not digital platforms, but certainly something. I actually, I love the idea of non-digital as well because I've my entire life I've only ever worked in a digital space mm. um, and seeing something physical like a book and the kind of the permanence that that has is kind of cool um, and you know I've always been a big magazine fan so I don't know what it is there's nothing percolating at the moment but I, I feel that when the time comes there'll be something that will I'll get really passionate about and that's pretty fucking exciting yeah do you think that you'd like to continue speaking to the same sort of age group and audience or are you eternally interested in what a younger consumer is doing or are you ready to glance upwards, yeah, upwards. To, yeah yeah speak to those those much maligned gen x's <laughs> well as the world's oldest living millennial um uh, i i don't know um i really enjoyed i've really enjoyed kind of growing up with this generation and watching watching millennials come into their own full force um, has been really cool to kind of watch um, and that's where a lot of my expertise has been like now it's kind of millennials and gen z and soon it will be generation alpha i think is the next oh, name wow, really? after that okay. yeah because we've got to the end of the alphabet oh, and now we're going to go to the greek alphabet now we're getting into 1984 territory yes totally <laughs> a lot of this book as you mentioned was all about what impact do you want to have and so no matter what i do or kind of where i end up it's going to be because I want to define what impact I want to have first and then how that manifests itself in a company or a business or working with other people will kind of come from there. I, I love that. I think that well, that's one thing. Everything you've done seems to have had such impact. I, I, you've almost learned how to do it just by 
creating things that automatically resonated. So you're, mm. you're, that's that would have to be in your list of X Men superpowers. <laughs> um, I well, just before we go, I'm so intrigued by the idea that you went to a desert island because I think I fantasized about that as well. And I was thinking maybe it isn't as amazing as I thought it would be because you could write an entire book on that experience. Did you just decide one day, okay, I've had Jack of the uh, over stimulated modern world. I'm going to the opposite of that. I'm going to go somewhere so remote that I'll look at I'll look at where I can just be marooned <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was uh, it was I think I consumed a lot of island and deserted island content growing up. I think I was a child of kind of the 80s and 90s and there Treasure was Island Treasure and Island Island, Survivor. Oh yeah. Mm. Robinson Family <laughs> Lost. Yeah. Robinson Family Crusoe. Gilligan's Island, like there's this whole like m- myth built around deserted islands and and it just kind of got into me and I kind of was in my mid-twenties, um, mid-late-twenties actually, and it was one of those things where I just had this like fantasy and it was just very weird and I'd always wanted to see what it's like to be on a deserted island. Would I go mad? Would I um, have you know, like this, like, insight that would come down from above and I'd be like, oh, that's the meaning of life. So I it kind of got to late 20s and so same, same was up and running then. Fag tag existed. And I remember I remember telling my parents first because they're the most supporting, amazing parents I've ever, you could ever wish for. And I went to them and I was like, I want to go desert myself on an island for a bit. And originally I was looking at islands in like the South Pacific and I was actually talking to my mum about this recently and she was like slightly, you know, she was kind of like trying to um, put them a bit closer to home, I think. So then I started looking at islands around Australia, looked at kind of the Great Barrier Reef and there is a bunch of islands that you can camp on if you speak to the National Parks and Wildlife Service and so there was one where I was like okay I kind of this island here looks really interesting spoke to the National Parks and Wildlife Service and booked it for myself for it was a couple of weeks like the the time's a bit hazy now it was a couple of weeks that I was on there and I wanted to not bring any books no music kind of the things that would distract you because normally you got time if I got a spare five minutes now I listen to a podcast and I just I wanted to see what happened when you took all of that away. Um, so I arranged with someone up, I went up to, uh, what's the place, Airlie Beach, um, and then arranged with someone who had a boat to drop me off on an island, and then arranged with him to drop off food for me once a week. So that was kind of like how I was going to survive, because I'm not very like... Could you refrigerate? No, okay. no. So it was like, bread. It was, it was, lunch would be like bread and peanut butter. So it was like things that you kind of could just keep out. Um, pretty simple kind of stuff. Like it wasn't, there was very basic. I didn't really eat much when I was on there. And so I got on there and it was fucking hard. I remember getting dropped off and it was like raining and cold. And the man just dropped me off with like, I had like a backpack and I had like a white um, styrofoam box with like my terrible supplies in it like you know food and bread and Vegemite and stuff and I just got dropped off and then I remember him like motoring away and it was like cold and it was wet and I was like what am I doing I it was I was it was very strange and I'm, I'm a really positive person and I kind of got there and there was no one else to blame but myself like it was like 
it was just me on a freaking deserted island. The only reading I had with me was I brought a medical book in case anything happened. And so I rationed myself like 10 pages of the medical book every day. Um, and that was the only kind of thing. And I had a pad and a pen and I wrote and I slept and I got depressed and I hated it. Like it was really shit. And it was one of these things where like this fantasy of my entire life was like, all I want to do is live on a deserted island. And I got there and I was like, I'm bored. I'm cold. It's really loud because deserted islands are deserted for a reason, which is that the wind break is terrible. So the whole time that like wind was coming through, I was scared. Like at night, I would kind of close my tent up and just try and go to bed like, you know, at seven o'clock when the sun went down and you just hear all these like animals and stuff outside making noises and you'd think you would hear footsteps and stuff like that. Um, and then you wake up in the morning and then like the sun would be over there. I didn't have a watch with me either. And then you would just have to wait for it to go all the way over to there. And when you've got, when you wake up at like five in the morning and you know, you've got until seven o'clock that night with nothing to do, you start going mad. Like I was counting the zips on my jacket. I remember, <gasps> I remember that was like my, my game. I would like count it and be like, 37? Oh yeah, 37. And then I'd count the other one. I'd talk to myself. Um, so that was, that was really weird. And then something happened, which was, I started like exploring the island. It's a pretty small island. There wasn't much to explore, which also added to the boredom. Like there was, it was, my fantasy was like, I would go there and I would like sunbake and I would like swim and, you know, I'd watch like, what's the Brooke Shields movie? Blue Lagoon. Blue Lagoon. You know, and I'm like... You'd make a house out of palm fronds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that that's what I would do. And I kind of got there and I, my motivation was just shit and there was nothing to do. And there was like, I had a pad and a pen. That was all I had to do to amuse myself. And even that, like, you can write for like half an hour, an hour, and then you just get bored. So I didn't sunbake once. Um... Someone asked, I don't even think I went nude. Someone asked me that recently. I was like, well, no, I just like, was just like. We pelted by sand. I was, it, was was just, so it was just like meh. The whole thing was just like, the mood was just like pretty shit. Like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I never got off the bottom level of like comfort and, and you know, I never got up to the self-actualization of like thinking of poetry and stuff like that. How, how did it, how did it sort of, I, I, it sounds like challenging, but it also sounds like, like it has the makings of a breakthrough or like some sort of aha moment because you were so deprived of stimuli. Yeah, I did. It had one aha moment. So I'd been on there for like a week. I don't even know. I think I like started like putting the days into like the side of a trunk or something like that. So I was on there for like a week or something like that. And it was pretty shit and I kind of really wanted to get off. And so I went exploring the island and I went around to this like that little path through and there was this like beautiful area there which I called reflection point because I couldn't think of anything better at the time because it was a point and I reflected a lot when I went there <laughs> and I kind of got there and the noise of the wind had been really intense the whole time and I I arrived at this reflection point and the wind died down for the first time and it was like when you go on a plane and your ears get blocked and then you don't kind of realize it and then all of a sudden like a day later they get unblocked and you're like ah oh, that's what the world feels like so I got there and realized this is what peace and calm and stuff felt like. And I just, all of a sudden, the whole thing like flipped for me. And it was like a fog lifting, like a kind of like the depression had kind of just gone away. And 
all of a sudden the sun came in there was like butterflies dancing in the water and I could see the fish there and I went for a swim and I was like oh this is amazing then went back to my campsite and my campsite I thought was like terrible and dark and spiders everywhere and I got back there I'm like this is beautiful look at this this is amazing and all of a sudden the whole thing flipped then and then I fucking loved it and so for the last period of time there I just tried to not let that go that like feeling of like this is actually quite amazing and this is like once in your lifetime and good on you for doing this and so almost like the positive talk kind of overtook all that negative talk of like who the fuck do you think you are I think there's something really nice about the realization of once you remove all of the safety blankets of life, all the things that you would normally automatically do to make yourself feel better, to micromanage your mood in terms of snacks and shows and watch books and all the the stimuli that we consume ourselves with, it is lovely to realize that if you were to remove all those, you have to have a period of disassociation and withdrawal, of (laughs) course, like an addict that we are. But then your natural mode is actually one of peace and contentment and gratitude mm. and, and joy. And then you're able to see all those, that, that seemingly seeming nothingness for something really beautiful, even if it's in its simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. So in the end, it was an amazing experience. It just, it took a lot of shit to get to that good place. And then once I got there, I just had to kind of keep hold of that. That was the thing. It kept on going away you know sometimes you wake up and you're like oh, I feel like shit and I'm like no 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 like it was almost like a balloon like a helium balloon that kept on kind of getting away from me I kept on trying to pull it back down and that's something that like I left that island 13 years ago and I've kind of never forgotten that lesson how wonderful when you I wonder the idea of having a dream or a vision for example to be marooned on a desert island and actually following through with it to the point at which you would take the steps to make it a reality. Do you think that that has got some similarity in the way you conduct yourself in life in other ways? Potentially. I've never thought about it. Yeah. Because it's um, one thing to think about something as extraordinary as that, and it's another thing altogether to commit to it and then to go, okay, well, how do I practically do the thing that I've decided I'm going to do? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, I, I, I just haven't thought about it because it's just it's what I do and what I did. And um, at the time, it just made complete sense to me. <laughs> like, I think anyone that I told, that's what I'm going to do. Like, all of my friends thought I was weird, everyone at work, my parents, everyone was just like, I'm like, no, it's just something I've always wanted to do. Like, with my time off this year, I'm going to take this time and I'm going to go to an island and sit there and see what happens. And, and it's also one of those things that you can do not, not the one thing you can do when you're younger, but I just think there's different times in life when you are more likely to do certain things. Um, and that was just one of those moments. I was in my late 20s and I was just like, let's just do this. I think there's something really nice about that that reminds me of what it takes to write a book, which is so many people think about doing the thing and very few others go, no, no, I'm just going to do it. Mm. And whether it's a disaster or a total success... I'll find that out once I get there. And now that I've committed to doing it, what are the practical steps I need to make it a reality? And I think that's kind of, if you looking at all the miraculous, the really amazing achievements that you've made throughout your life and launching so many things that become communities and movements and entire ways of looking at, at, at landscapes, and then something like a nice and cohesive, like a, a book 
that some people think forever. Oh, I'd love to write a book. Yeah. It's just nice to, to go, you know, no, it's, it's just the difference between going, uh, I've thought of it, now I'm actually going to commit to it. Yeah. And, and that's the hard, like the thinking of it is the easy part. <laughs> it is, the ideas are easy. It's the, it's the committing to it and doing it that's the, that's the slog. Um, but it's also so rewarding. Like the island was so rewarding and writing a book so far has just, there's something really amazing. It's the, it's the closest thing to um, uh, not thought, like transposing your thoughts into someone else's mind. What's that called? Mind reading. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the term was there. It's the closest thing to mind reading because you get to read. That's why books are so amazing. And I'm, yeah, this is not a new concept, but you get to read someone else's thoughts. But I've only ever consumed other people's thoughts and been on the other end of that and coming up with these concepts and ideas that I think are really interesting and things that I've noticed over the years. And then other people reading that or listening to that and then being able to speak about that. There's something amazing in that idea exchange that I'm really enjoying. And also, I like the idea that you learned a little bit more about yourself, not just through the process of writing by writing it, but also doing your own exercises. You were able to coach yourself mm. because you're, and I think that that's something also really nice to remember when all the work that we make really educates, like whenever we coach someone else or write something or create something, it really cultivates us as humans at the same time as through the act of doing the thing. Mm. So it's an entirely, it's a gift unto itself, even if it doesn't become a bestseller or other people don't resonate in the same way it just is a wonderful gift to yourself to have done the thing yeah totally agree um tim thank you so much thank you dan i really enjoyed it yeah great really good and uh i'll i'm going to put links to all of the well actually to the recommendation that you made for the other book but also to where people can find out more about about this book and and yeah, awesome. follow your journey. Sign up to your mailing list yeah. for the next the, yeah, the, the next, next fifteen years. Next, next the simplest years. way is the book's called Cult Status, and the website's cultstatus.com. Great, and of which there are also uh, additional exercises. There are, yeah. There's, there's a workbook you can download mm. for free. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm all about the workbook. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much. Thank you, Dad.